Welcome to the Exploress. Time traveling through history, one era at a time. I'm Kate Armstrong. Hello, listeners. Now that we've officially left the Tudor era in England, it's time for us to travel to a whole new time and place. Grab a slinky dress or a dapper suit and pour yourself an illicit libation, because in Season 4, we're going to the roaring 1920s. This is an era I've wanted to travel to since I first started The Exploress, and I can't think of a better time to do it than in the same month I publish my debut novel, Nightbirds, a 1920s-tinted fantasy about a world with a prohibition on magic instead of alcohol. A world in which a mysterious group of girls will give someone their rare magic with just a kiss for a price. It's got things in it I know you're going to love, listeners. Dangerous speakeasies, magical cocktails, decadent parties, political intrigue, and, at the heart of it all, three girls who refuse to play nice with the patriarchy. It's coming out on February 28th, and it would mean the world to me if you'd pre-order a copy. Pre-orders mean a lot to authors. They signal enthusiasm to book buyers and publishers. They impact things like marketing and print runs. And they also count towards a book's first week sales, which can get them onto bestseller lists. A girl can dream. You can also request it from your local library or pre-order the audiobook version, which is truly incredible. I'll be sharing a sneak peek with you very soon. Find out all about Nightbirds on my other podcast, Pub Dates, which takes readers behind the scenes on the road to its publication. My author website, katejarmstrong.com or theexploresspodcast.com. Thank you so much for supporting my work. Before we dive fully into the Jazz Age, I want to walk us through some of the years before it and on to one of the most momentous legal shifts women had seen in America. Women winning the right to vote was a massive achievement and a huge undertaking. The culmination of many decades of campaigning, it reached its crescendo with picketing and some time in prison that helped shock Washington out of their complacency. We can't fully appreciate a woman's life in the 1920s without these stories. So, let's revisit a vintage Halloween special and find out just how hard-fought this battle was. Welcome to this Explores Halloween special. Time traveling through history, one era at a time. I'm Kate Armstrong. A woman huddles in the corner of a dank, lightless cell. Rats scurry across the filthy floor, their nails scraping against it. The whole place stinks of sweat and sick. A bowl of something sits near the door, writhing with worms. She won't touch it. She wouldn't, even if it were the finest banquet. Her head swims, her thoughts a jumble, tension knotted deep in her gut. But her purpose, that hasn't faded. It never will. She will not eat, no matter what they do to her. She will never give in. The men have come again. Her throat burns in protest, her heart slamming hard against her ribs. She knows what they will do. Strap down her hands, shove a tube down her throat, and pour milk and eggs by force into her body. She will bleed and gag as they tell her that all the other women are behaving. All the rest have chosen to end their hunger strike. She is alone and weary to her bones, but she will not let them break her. To win women the vote, she will give everything she has. This Halloween special has nothing to do with poisoners or murderesses or ghosts of any kind, but it is full of the haunting women being ignored and abused and told to sit down and be quiet. And I bring it to you now, not because of the spooky season, but because America is about to cast its vote for its next president. 
a vote that, until 100 years ago, most women couldn't cast at all. The story of the American suffrage movement is long and complex, filled with noteworthy characters, highlights and shadows, and plenty of paths we could get lost wandering down. I've posted a list of books, movies, podcasts, and online resources that will guide you down many of them. But to tell the story fully would take many hours, and that is not my aim today. I want to explore some of the most haunting aspects of the fight for suffrage, and the dark consequences that come when you don't have a public voice. Grab your best white dress, a yellow badge, and a thick skin. Let's go traveling. But first, a shout out to some of my patrons. My newest pirate queens, Andrea S, Andrea F, Scott, Jenny, and Sarah J. My newest lady presidents, Amy, Allison, Sarah R, and Teresa. My newest boss lady, Melissa. My warrior queens, Alexis, Amanda, Kate, Ika, June, Neve, and Sloan, and Samantha. My imperial empresses, Teresa, Bridget, Katie, Faye and Whimsy Soapworks, and Samara, and my Lady Pharaohs, Kate, Sophie, Laura, Lewis, and the Fabulous Courtneys. Long may they reign. Much love to all of my patrons. You really help me keep the show going and growing. In fact, all of the characters you're going to meet in this episode have been voiced by patrons of the show who helped me bring this story to life. By becoming a patron, you support the show and you get access to exclusive bonus content, minisodes, interviews, sneak peeks, Q&As, artwork, discounts on merchandise, and so much more. To find out all about it, just go to my website. And now... On with the show. This episode is dedicated to my grandmother, Joan C. Chevalier, whose enthusiasm for politics, sense of civic duty, and willingness to raise her voice continues to inspire me. The longing for more rights for women in America goes back to its colonial foundations. Many of the earliest colonists shipped from countries like England and France were women who didn't have a lot of them. Some were convicts, others were kidnapped, literally taken off the streets to feed a dire shortage of colonial wives and laborers. Others went voluntarily, seeking escape or a fresh start only to wind up as indentured servants, some living under conditions similar to the enslaved. Women with money and social status did better, but even so, when she married, her rights and property all went to her husband. Her keeper, legally speaking. I mean, what does she need with it? As Sir William Blackstone, an English jurist, put it, The husband and wife are one, and the husband is that one. Uh, that only works when that one respects his wife and sees her as his equal, and even then, it's full of holes. So much needed doing in the burgeoning colonies that, for a time, women did much of the same work as men, but their wages were consistently lower. Then again, husbands and fathers often died while women were still young, leaving them land holdings and printing presses, taverns and stores, and some of them made pretty good coin. The consequence being that many colonial women operated with an independence that they wouldn't see again for many decades. No wonder, then, that sisters Margaret and Mary Brent stayed single. After establishing a 70-acre plot they called Sisters Freehold in the colony of Maryland, Margaret became a businesswoman and moneylender. When clients didn't pay, she took them to court. In 1648, she went to the Maryland Assembly and demanded to be given a vote on a matter of some import to her fortunes. She was, we think, the first colonial woman to appear before a common law court and to demand a vote, and she didn't get it. Get ready for this to be a continuing trend. That's not to say these women didn't play a role in political matters. As the main shoppers for their families, they were crucial to the boycotts that led to the American Revolution. They shunned English tea, organized marches, sang political songs, and organized spinning bees. Abigail Adams, wife of revolutionary leading light John Adams, said that women were ready to pick up muskets if need be. If our men are drawn off and we should be attacked, she wrote, you would find a race of Amazons in America. 
And women did fight on the battlefront as camp followers and spies. After all, they were as impacted by the results as anyone. But when it came to their role in the new nation's politics, that's something the Founding Fathers seemed happy to forget. After all, Thomas Jefferson wrote to one politically-minded woman, The tender breasts of ladies were not formed for political convulsion. Bite me, TJ. In 1776, the Declaration of Independence said that all men are created equal. Though, of course, by that, they really meant only men, and only white ones. That didn't stop Abigail Adams from writing to her husband at the Continental Congress, knowing that important decisions about her sex were being made. Remember the ladies, she wrote, words that will echo hauntingly through the minds of many women to come. And be more generous and favorable to them than your ancestors. Do not put such unlimited power into the hands of the husbands. That your sex are naturally tyrannical is a truth so thoroughly established as to admit of no dispute. But such of you as wish to be happy willingly give up the harsh title of master for the more tender and endearing one of friend. Why then not put it out of the power of the vicious and the lawless to use with cruelty and indignity and impunity? Men of sense in all ages abhor those customs which treat us only as the vassals of your sex. His answer, I'm afraid, is going to make you want to trounce him soundly. As to your extraordinary code of laws, I cannot but laugh. He, like many, believed that women influenced society without needing any political power. They always had, hadn't they? Their job was to morally influence their husbands and raise virtuous sons. And by doing so, they helped create a fairer nation. Come now, ladies, let's stay in our lane. To vote at this time, you had to be a landowner. This knocked out pretty well everyone but white men. But then, sometimes women did own property, so what about that? Over time, laws were changed. By the turn of the 19th century, the only colony that allowed women to vote was New Jersey. Well, by allowed, I mean the law's wording didn't strictly prohibit it. So many women showed up at the polls that some worried that if nothing was done about it, as one writer said, we may shortly expect to see them take the helm of government. And we can't have that. In 1807, after a right mess of an election, the New Jersey legislature decided to reform the law. They explicitly took voting rights away from women and African Americans while they were at it. They won't get them back for many decades to come. Many women continued to question this situation. Abigail Adams, poet Phyllis Wheatley, the Southern Grimke sisters who speak out against slavery and the limits placed on women. I ask no favors for my sex, Sarah Grimke says in 1838. All I ask of our brethren is that they will take their feet from off our necks and permit us to stand upright on that ground which God has designed us to occupy. But by the 1840s, little has changed for women in regards to their legal status. If anything, the Victorian era and its ideas about separate spheres have made it worse. Even Elizabeth Cady Stanton, an affluent, upper-class white woman, feels constricted by the limitations placed on women of her era. In a time when most women struggle to make a living wage on their own, marriage is often the clearest path to security, whether you want to get married or not. But once they do, women are, in Stanton's words, civilly dead. In her Declaration of Sentiments, delivered at the First National Convention on Women's Rights in 1848, Stanton will say that man has compelled her to submit to laws in the formation for which she had no voice. Her husband votes for her. Why would women need their own voice in government when the men in their lives, their protectors, speak for them? As an essay from the 1790s put it, marriage is a woman's chance to cheerfully submit to the government of her own choosing. Cute. But what about unmarried women, abandoned women, enslaved women, divorced women, struggling women? Who is supposed to speak for them? As Susan B. Anthony, Stanton's partner in leading the early suffrage movement, will one day say, Woman must not depend upon the protection of man, but must be taught to protect herself. 
Having no voice in government can have ripple effects that affect your day-to-day -day in major ways. Women can't own property or make contracts in their own right in this era. They can't even keep their wages if married. They hand them right over to the male head of the house. Most colleges and professions are off-limits to them. After all, as Dr. Charles Meigs tells his gynecology students in 1847, she has a head almost too small for intellect and just big enough for love. Okay. Women's medical and gynecological care is in the hands of numbskulls like that guy. Men who think the womb make women naturally more prone to going crazy. Just two years after he shares that gem with his students, Catherine Blackwell becomes the first woman to get a medical degree in America. She is inspired to make the move after a dying friend confesses that her whole ordeal would have been so much easier with a female doctor. How does she get into that college, you wonder, when women aren't allowed to attend? The faculty let the all-male student body vote on the issue, and they all vote yes, as a joke. Apparently, they are all pretty shocked when she actually shows up on the first day of class. Catherine is an exception, as is any woman in this era who breaks into such a profession, and she has to fight for it tooth and nail. Women can work, of course, but they're likely to be paid a whole lot less for it. Teaching is still mostly a man's profession at this time, as most believe the role requires you to be strong enough to apply sound beatings. Civil War nurse and so much more, Clara Barton's first job was being a teacher. She once famously said that, I may sometimes be willing to teach for nothing, but if paid at all, I shall never do a man's work for less than a man's pay. She opened her own successful school in New Jersey, and then the town hired a male principal while she was on vacation, saying they'd gladly keep her on as his assistant at half his salary. Yeah, no thanks. But at least she had the option. At least she had a family with some money and social status to fall back on. Many women are facing down much more limited prospects. Jobs like that of laundress, which will earn her 10 bucks a month at the most when most working men's monthly salaries range from $10 to 20. A maid earns four to seven, while well-regarded cooks can make seven or eight. As a domestic servant, you have to live in someone else's house and potentially deal with sexual harassment. And if she gets pregnant, is the man likely to step in and help out? No way, lady! American society looks at perpetually unmarried women with both suspicion and pity. And unmarried women with babies? Well, you might as well be a lady of the evening. Many hardworking, working-class girls turn to sex work because their wages are so bad they have to side hustle to make ends meet. This is more likely true for single women, or those with husbands who can't or won't provide. If a couple divorces, which is difficult and seriously taboo already, the husband is likely to get all of her possessions and the children. The woman might as well walk away with nothing but the clothes on her back. And if a husband decides his wife isn't all there, he can stick her in a mental institution without needing her consent. Insane asylums become catch-alls for women who are violent, difficult, or just generally inconvenient. Husbands and fathers call on psychologists to check out their ladies' abnormal behavior. Things like exhaustion, lack of menstruation, grieving too hard after a child dies, swearing, and of course masturbation. Epilepsy and a high sex drive are considered a kind of mania. In a list of intakes at Wisconsin's Mendota Medical Asylum between 1869 and 1900, I found the following entry. A German woman, married with 11 children, was checked in for what was deemed insane by domestic troubles. What mother of 11 isn't insane by domestic troubles? But I digress. Elizabeth Ware Packard is a walking advertisement for the dangers inherent to women in this century, especially when you're married to someone who does not see you as his equal. This Illinois mother of six disagreed with her husband, Theophilus, a Calvinist minister, on several issues. Child-rearing, money, slavery. But the real trouble came when she started questioning his religious beliefs. In 1860, he will hire a doctor to have a chat with her while pretending to be a sewing machine salesman. After she complains about her husband's domineering behavior, he diagnoses her as insane. She is, as she put it, legally kidnapped, and spends three years in an asylum before finally getting her case seen in court. 
I regarded the principle of religious tolerance as the vital principle on which our government was based, and I, in my ignorance, supposed this right was protected to all American citizens, she writes later, even to the wives of clergymen. But alas, my own sad experience has taught me the danger of believing a lie on so vital a question. Women of all classes have to deal with these issues, but some women are especially vulnerable. Poor and single women, immigrants, enslaved women, and Native American women. If we cataloged all the ways that having no public voice hurt these populations, we'd be here for a very long time. In fact, many indigenous nations, the Iroquois, for example, had long exercised a far greater level of equality than in white settlement America. Most of their societies were matrilineal, meaning that descent and property was passed down through a woman's line. Women held important positions and a much more equal division of labor. Many of the ladies in the first wave of the suffrage movement were directly inspired by these communities, and even as they're pushed west by settlers, told about all the rights they shouldn't have, Native American women continue to speak up demanding justice. When Sarah Winnemucca, a Paiute woman, goes to Washington to speak out against the abuses being laid on her people, she says, If women could go into your Congress, I think justice would soon be done to the Indians. True, we'll never know, since women in this era aren't allowed to run for office. In 1840, Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Lucretia Mott meet at an anti-slavery conference in England and bond over being denied the right to speak at it, of course, because they're women. They decide when they get home, they'll start organizing their own convention, this time specifically on women's rights. Eight years later, they hold what's called the Seneca Falls Convention. At it, Stanton delivers her Declaration of Sentiments, saying that, Man has endeavored in every way that he could to destroy women's confidence in her own powers, to lessen her self-respect, and to make her willing to lead a dependent and abject life. But, she felt, without the right to vote, all of their declarations would be nothing more than fanciful wishes. So she adds this to the resolution. That is the duty of the women of this country, to secure to themselves their sacred right to the elective franchise. It's hard to overstate how radical this is. A lot of the convention-goers are horrified. Oh, Lizzie, Lucretia Mott cries upon hearing it. If thou demands that, that will make us ridiculous. Demanding the vote is considered completely extreme and deeply unfeminine. They have so many other, more pressing rights to fight for. For many, suffrage is a step too far. But women have been stepping out in other ways for a long time, using their voices in the public sphere to champion reform causes, most especially abolition. For a long time, the fight to end slavery and the fight for suffrage are deeply intermingled. Many abolitionists pushing for freedom also believe that women should have the same rights as men. Women like Stanton and her longtime compatriot, Susan B. Anthony, cut their reform movement teeth fighting for the abolishment of slavery. In the fight for abolition, women are gaining experience with campaigning, fundraising, petitioning, and speaking to crowds. Though, to be honest, many of the women who step up to the mic to say anything in this era are rudely booed and treated to some pretty crass remarks. It isn't seemly, after all, for a woman to speak in public. Not even at abolition conventions, it seems. Even their symbology is similar. Both movements use imagery of people bound in chains and breaking free of them to represent their bondage. Prominent abolitionist Frederick Douglass is all about suffrage. Sojourner Truth, an active abolitionist and suffrage campaigner, is one of the most famous black women to participate in the movement. Though, of course, she's not the only one. In 1851, at a women's rights conference in Akron, Ohio, she delivers a speech about being black and a woman in a country that seems to respect the rights of neither. I have as much muscle as any man, and can do as much work as any man. I have plowed and reaped and husked and chopped and mowed, and can any man do much more than that? I have heard much about the sexes being equal. I can carry as much as any man, can eat as much too if I can get it. I am as strong as any man that is now. As for intellect, all I can say is, 
If women have a pint and man have a quart, why can't she have her little pintful? As the Civil War comes on, women push aside their fight for rights to pitch in for the war effort, and many risk their lives and reputations. They fight and die as soldiers, work and die as nurses, which at this time is also a male-dominated field, and as campaigners and fundraisers. And then, when it's over, the nation is so grateful that they start piling on the legal rights, right? Not really. So suffragists have to figure out how best to take up the cause again. In 1866, writer and lecturer Frances Ellen Watkins Harper stands up at the 11th National Women's Rights Convention and tells the crowd about her experiences as a black woman in America. When her husband died, all their property was taken from her. The mostly white audience nods along. Same old story. But then she tells them about how she suffers under a double yoke of injustice. How her rights as a woman and as black can't be separated. To be successful, the causes need to stay joined. She says, We are all bound up together in one great bundle of humanity. And so they form the American Equal Rights Association, dedicated to achieving suffrage for all. But things get sticky when the discussion turns to the 14th Amendment and whether to support the draft of the 15th. The 14th prohibits states from denying eligible voters, but specifies that they have to be male. The proposed 15th Amendment talks about not denying rights along the lines of race, color, or previous condition of servitude, but doesn't mention women. Where are they? Many suffragists throw their weight behind it anyway, feeling that emancipation for black men has to come first. Once they win it, surely they'll reach back and pull up the women who fought beside them for so long. But some, like Stanton and Anthony, feel that this wording is a direct betrayal. Stanton, a longtime abolitionist, gives a regrettably angry speech in which she basically says something like, You're going to give the vote to people of color and foreigners, but not educated white women? Not good. There are plenty of women of color working hard for suffrage, but the mainstream suffrage organizations don't seem able or willing to address the everyday challenges black women face. There's a lot more to say and explore about this issue, but suffice it to say, this movement isn't free of racism or classism. It's a shadow that will forever hang over the cause. And so, the suffrage movement fractures. Stanton and Anthony split off, starting the National Woman Suffrage Association, a more radical group all for universal suffrage by means of the Constitution. Others, like Lucy Stone and Julia Ward Howe, form the American Woman Suffrage Association, which actively champions black men's suffrage and wants to push for women's suffrage state by state. They won't merge until 1890, forming the National American Woman Suffrage Association. And universal suffrage is still a long way away. And yet there are places where a woman can cast her vote. As settlers start moving west and establishing territories, they take a more liberal approach to the issue, hoping to lure the ladies out to the predominantly man-filled settlement west. It's not like there are enough ladies out here on the plains to make that big a difference. Why not throw them a bone? In the late 1860s, by a vote of 13 to 6, Wyoming passes a bill giving women the right to vote and hold office. And when they apply for statehood and the federal government balks, they snap back, We will remain out of the Union a hundred years rather than come in without our women. On September 6, 1870, a posse of ladies led by a 70-year-old housewife marched to the polls in Laramie, making them some of the first women in the U.S. to vote in a very long time. Of course, the West is less kind to its indigenous residents. In 1876, the Supreme Court will rule that no Native American can vote because, technically, they aren't citizens. That, of course, includes women. And while the West seems like a bright beacon of hope for a time, it isn't the domino fall to universal suffrage that many hope it will be. The West lets some women vote for its own reasons, but that doesn't mean the East and the South are gonna get down. Hold up. When the 14th Amendment is ratified in 1868, it grants citizenship to all persons born or naturalized in the United States. 
And citizenship should include the right to vote, shouldn't it? Hundreds of women show up at the polls to test the point, including Sojourner Truth and Susan B. Anthony. Well, I have been and gone and done it. Anthony writes a friend on November 5th, 1872. She was sure they wouldn't let her vote. She kind of hoped for it, actually, so she'd have grounds for a lawsuit. Two weeks later, she is arrested by a federal officer, but it doesn't give her the grounds for taking it to court. Down in St. Louis, though, when Virginia Minor is turned away at the polls, the suffrage leader in her state sues the election official. Well, her husband sues him because legally, she can't. Minor versus Happersett gets all the way to the Supreme Court, where they argue that Missouri violated the 14th Amendment by denying her privileges as a citizen. The final ruling that the Constitution of the United States does not confer the right of suffrage upon anyone. It sets a precedent for state-by-state -state voter suppression, and for the movement, it is a real momentum-stealing blow. Rights for women do start gaining ground on a state-by-state -state level. Back in 1850, for example, Tennessee became the first state to explicitly outlaw wife-beating. Hooray! We start seeing things like married women gaining separate economy, owning and controlling property, and being granted patent rights. From what I can glean, almost all of these rights are for married women, not single ones. Heaven forfend a single lady have any control over these things. Suffrage, though, is another matter. The Woman's Suffrage Amendment is introduced in 1878, but it'll take another 40 years to actually get anywhere. And all along the way, there are plenty of haters actively campaigning against female suffrage, making the fight feel like pushing mud uphill. In 1871, the Anti-Suffrage Party pops up, as do anti-suffrage postcards showing scenes like a man doing the washing while holding the baby while their wife sits with her friends and smokes. Horrors! And here's another haunting fact. A lot of these campaigns are run by women. Mrs. General William Tecumseh Sherman and Mrs. Admiral John A. Dahlgren both go to Congress, warning that suffragists would upset the American family dynamic. They don't want to be saddled with the vote, they say. It would lead to competition with men, will disrupt their moral purity, and actually take some of their influence away. Pamphlets pop up on the issue, one saying that the pro-suffrage movement was being penetrated by a small body of intensive and fanatical women, and that giving women the vote would be detrimental to the best interests of the state. Another advises its female readers that they do not need a ballot to clean out your sink spout. Control of the temper makes a happier home than control of elections. Oh my. This is hard for many of us today to understand. Why would women campaign against themselves? The answer is, of course, it's complicated. We've seen time and again on this podcast, in our stories about women in different eras, that there are many kinds of power and many ways to wield it. Some women think theirs is most potent when worked from behind gauzy curtains and on the home front. It makes the fight for suffrage a whole lot harder. The first dozen states to grant the vote to women are all in the West. Colorado boards the train in 1893, Utah and Idaho in 1896, Washington State in 1910, and California in 1911. Then Oregon, Kansas, and Arizona in 1912, Montana and Nevada just before World War I. And yet at this point, it seems almost impossible to get universal suffrage. It is to the strong, courageous, and progressive men of the Western states that the women of this whole country are looking for deliverance," wrote Ida Husted Harper in 1905. It is these men who must start this movement and give it such momentum that it will roll irresistibly onto the very shores of the Atlantic Ocean. But it's the women who have to fight tooth and nail for it, and they have to do it moving state by state, a painful process. Not to say they won't run for office anyway. Suffragist and newspaper publisher Victoria Woodhull is the first woman to run for president in 1872, under the banner of the Equal Rights Party. Okay, so she is only 33 and so not officially eligible, and she names Frederick Douglass her VP without asking permission, but this racy dame has a point to make. If Congress refused to listen and to grant what women ask, there is but one course left to pursue. 
she once tells the House Judiciary Committee. What is there left for women to do but to become the mothers of the future government? Belva Lockwood is the first woman to have a super-legit run for the presidency in 1884 and 1888. At least 11 other women will go for president or vice president in America's history. And quite a few of them do it before women can vote. And so we enter the 20th century and what's called the Progressive Era. It's a time when life for women in America, and everyone, is changing fast. Women are starting to cast off their corsets and embrace fashion that is easier to move in, especially so they can ride the newfangled bicycle. After years of heavy skirts and small steps, they can now whip through the park on their two-wheeled contraption, hair swinging in the breeze. The bicycle, Susan B. Anthony says, did more to emancipate women than anything else in the world. They become a symbol of what is called the new woman. She's more independent, more liberated than ever. She has legs, and she isn't afraid to show them, damn it. A Scribner's essayist says at the time that the bicycle has given to all American womankind the liberty of dress for which reformers have been sighing for generations. Others worry the bike is creating loose morals. After all, says the Boston Rescue League, some 30% of the sex workers who come to them for aid say they've been bike riders at some point. And while they might not be able to cast their ballot, many women are taking up serious reform initiatives, working to clean up their world and make it a fairer, more moral place. They're starting unions, fighting for temperance, creating low-income housing and education, especially for women. Jane Addams is pioneering the Settlement House movement, becoming a well-known campaigner for better living conditions for the downtrodden. There are more women working in male-dominated fields than ever, like Ida Tarbell, the investigative journalist who rips into big-time monopolists like John D. Rockefeller. Female entrepreneurs are making big money, like C.J. Walker, a hair product tycoon. So what is the deal? Why don't women have the right to vote? Because progress isn't a smooth, steady escalator ride, even if we like to think it is. It's a mountain climb, with switchbacks and stumbles, a jagged and often complicated path. And there's another route to the issue, fear about what women will do with their vote. The Democrats fear that they'll vote Republican. The robber barons worry they'll vote to break up monopolies and lean down hard about social reform. Liquor companies pour money into anti-suffrage campaigns because they think women will vote for prohibition, killing business. They know that a woman's voice can be a powerful thing. The suffrage movement is in something of a slump now, dispirited, tired of moving state by state, working tirelessly and winning rights at a grueling crawl. Vets like Elizabeth Cady Stanton no longer think they'll see the vote in their lifetime. Our movement is belated, she says, age 86. And like all things too long postponed, now gets on everybody's nerves. Even Carrie Chapman Catt, who takes over from Anthony as leader of the National American Woman Suffrage Association, says that she isn't sure she has it in her to get them there. But she knows that there's a woman out there who will. Someday she'll come. She writes a friend in 1912. Perhaps she is growing up now the woman who will finally get them across that elusive finish line. She is already grown, it turns out, and she and the women around her are ready to take the movement to a new militant level. We're in 1913 now, the year Woodrow Wilson takes office. He has never been a friend to women's suffrage. As a professor at Bryn Mawr, he thought it was beneath him to have to teach female students. He once said that women's suffrage was the foundation of evil in this country. But he's about to encounter a new kind of suffragist. Enter Alice Paul, Lucy Burns, and Elizabeth Cady Stanton's daughter, Harriet Stanton Blatch. They've all spent time in England, getting involved in the suffrage movement across the pond, which had a very different flavor. These ladies weren't afraid to throw rocks and throw themselves in front of carriages, and they also weren't afraid to get themselves arrested. In fact, they wanted the publicity. 
And then they get back to America to find the same old movement, the same old tired tactics. They are done with being polite and asking sweetly. What Americans need, they decide, is a hard shot in the arm. So they start organizing rallies and marches, pageants and demonstrations. A march in Manhattan involves 10,000 people, all marching in the movement's signature yellow. And it's not just socialites. This new wave of suffragists want women from every walk of life involved and invested. Corset makers and nurses walk arm in arm with famous society women like Alva Belmont. There's also Mabel Ping Kwa Lee, a Chinese immigrant who rides on horseback through the city, even though she knows the Chinese Exclusion Act will keep the right to vote denied to her. She fights for a woman's right just the same. And then, in 1913, they mobilize at least 5,000 women, though some sources say up to 10,000, to march on Washington the day before Woodrow Wilson's inauguration. Let him see the population he's saying shouldn't have a voice. This is the most conspicuous and important demonstration that has ever been attempted by suffragists in this country, urged the NAWSA's New York headquarters. This parade will be taken to indicate the importance of the suffrage movement. Women hear the call, charging on foot from New York City for it, picking up suffragists all along the way. The parade is led by lawyer Inez Milholland, all wrapped up in a white cape atop a prancing white horse. Now, that's making an entrance. But this is another complex and sometimes haunting moment. Alice Paul wants the support of Southern women, which means, it turns out, shoving black suffragists to the back of the parade. Ida B. Wells, a prominent journalist and civil rights leader who speaks out against lynching in the South, refuses to do so. She walks out of the crowd and into her state's portion of the parade, defying anyone to stop her. If the Illinois women do not take a stand now in this great democratic parade, she says, then the colored women are lost. But they are lost, at least their images are. There are plenty of women of color in this parade and campaigning around the issue. You don't see them as often in pictures because they are shoved aside, almost hidden. Another painful shadow in the fight for women's rights. All the women suffer as they march, abuse hurled from hostile men lining the sidewalk. They are tripped, grabbed, shoved, and subjected to what one writer calls barnyard conversation. The police are hopeless. Sometimes they even join in. More than a hundred women are hospitalized. Ambulances come and go, always impeded and sometimes straight up stopped, so that doctors have to fight their way to the injured. Later, the superintendent of D.C. police will lose his job over it. Bye! But the worst thing, besides calls of things like, Where are your skirts, honey? is how their antagonists treat it like a joke, something to be laughed at. To these women, the issue is one of life and death. The march infuses the movement with much-needed attention and energy, bringing more people to the cause. And yet, they continue to struggle to make any real progress. The Great War has started over in Europe, and the nation's mind is turned toward whether it should join into the fray. It's 1917 now, and Woodrow Wilson has just been voted in for a second term. For years, he's ignored them, and when he does deign to take their meetings, he tells them he has more important matters to attend to. A year ago, he made noises about how he was starting to come around, but still wouldn't commit to anything. Best for states to decide such things on an individual basis. More moderate suffragists are hopeful. Super militants like Alice Paul are not. And he's just signed off on America joining a war that's supposed to be about fighting for democracy. This from a government in which 50% of the population can't truly participate and inequality is rampant. In 1916, Montana suffragist Jeanette Rankin was elected to the U.S. House of Representatives, the first woman to win a seat in the federal Congress. So, a woman can serve, but she still can't vote. And when she speaks out against America joining the war, her male compatriots and the press all shout that it's proof that women just can't handle either violence or tough decisions. This is a war in which women will participate, fighting as they always do as ambulance drivers and nurses, tending victims of the 1918 influenza, and so much more. 
300 women, nicknamed Marinettes, will take on jobs at Marine Corps headquarters to replace the men who usually do them. They'll take up jobs on the home front, too, like train drivers, factory workers, bomb builders. The government's clamoring for them to do it, even though these jobs weren't considered appropriate for women before. During this war, Ofa Mae Johnson will become the first woman sworn into the Marine Corps. In other words, women can serve and they can suffer, but they still can't have a say. On January 9, 1917, women crowd into the new headquarters of the Congressional Union for Women's Suffrage. They've gathered in Cameron House, just a stone's throw from the White House. Harriet Stanton Blatch stands up to address them. Her mother was once one of the biggest players of the suffrage movement, but what her daughter has to say would make even her mother blanch. We have got to bring to the president, day by day, week in, week out, the idea that great numbers of women want to be free, will be free, and want to know what he is going to do about it. They've told us to sit down and be quiet. They've told us that we're better when we're seen and not heard. So why not turn that silence against them, making it into a powerful protest? In other words, the women in Cameron House are officially over it. They decide it's time to take the gloves off. On January 10th, a bunch of these ladies put on their hats and coats and go to stand in front of the White House. Their mandate is not to let anyone rattle them or make eye contact with any angry passersby. They're to be silent, holding up their signs in front and pressing their backs to the Iron Gate for safety. Alice Paul says they'll be standing here silently and peacefully from 10 to 6 every day but Sunday for the foreseeable future. The sight of picketing in front of the White House is commonplace in our era, but back when these ladies did it, they were breaking new ground, and it was considered pretty radical. Some find the picketing an exhilarating bonding experience. Others, like Dora Stevens, say, Anything but standing at the president's gate would be more diverting. And explain that she spends a lot of time wondering, When will that woman come to relieve me? Sometimes they find it truly exhausting. Some describe how the sockets of their arms ache from holding their signs, which say things like, Mr. President, what will you do for women's suffrage? And, How long must women wait for liberty? Woodrow Wilson just smiles and waves, even offering to have them into the big house for coffee if they'd like. But looking out the windows at them waving their signs, he must be shaken. Such a thing has never happened in front of the White House before. He can't believe they'd go so far, and he's not the only one. Even some suffragists think Alice Paul's gone way too far this time. Carrie Chapman Catt has gone to great lengths for women's suffrage, but even she publicly denounces it. The National Association Opposed to Women's Suffrage says, As an argument, it ranks with the small boys thrusting out his tongue. As a demonstration of fitness for the vote, it is idiotic. Many people think it's a bit much to picket during wartime. The animosity only grows as America enters World War I. But there is something about these silent women, standing there with their signs held high through snow and rain and freezing wind. As the war rages on, their presence starts to wear away against many of the hardened. One congressman said there was something religious about it, something almost holy. But in some corners, there is only a growing rancor that threatens to bubble over. When the chief of police warns that arrests are imminent if they don't give up already, Alice Paul says, I feel that we will continue. And then things get a whole lot less holy when a Russian delegation comes to visit the White House in June 1917. Lucy Burns and several of the silent sentinels unfurl a huge banner addressed to the envoys, comparing Wilson to the German Kaiser for denying women the vote. It is pure scandal, and it swiftly causes a riot. Angry bystanders rush in, pushing and ripping, but the women refuse to back down. Suffragist Inez Haynes Irwin describes the slow growth of the crowds, the circle of little boys who gathered about, first spitting at them, calling them names, making personal comments, 
then the gathering of gangs of young hoodlums who encouraged the boys to further insults. Sometimes the crowd would edge nearer and nearer until there was but a foot of smothering, terror-fraught space between them and the pickets. And then, days later, they hold up a sign etched with Wilson's own words to Congress from months before. We shall fight for the things which we have always carried nearest to our hearts, for democracy, for the right of those who submit to authority to have a voice in their government. Remember the ladies, indeed. The police can't arrest the women for standing there with signs. They aren't technically breaking any laws. But soon enough, they start arresting them anyway for things like blocking traffic. The establishment doesn't want them arrested, turning them into martyrs. But fines and trips to the clink just aren't working. So more and more of them are sent to prisons, specifically Virginia's Occoquan Workhouse. The conditions are bad, the food is inedible, and they have very little contact with the outside world. One John Hopkins goes to visit his wife there and is so appalled that he confronts Wilson directly. Under pressure, he tries to pardon the women, but they won't accept it. They didn't break any laws, so they actually get kicked out of their prison. And yet they go on, even as the violence grows worse. Imagine walking down the wide, bright streets of your nation's capital, holding a sign asking your president for the vote. Imagine then being shouted at, then pushed, then hit, then dragged down that street. It happened over and over, men telling women they need to get back in their place. And yet the Sentinels refuse to be silent. By the end of September, some two dozen women are being held at the workhouse. By October, so is Alice Paul. But she's okay with it. I am being imprisoned, she told reporters. Because I pointed out to President Wilson the fact that he was obstructing the cause of democracy and justice at home, while Americans fight for it abroad. They'll be treated as prisoners, that's for sure. Their cells at Occoquan are dark and dank and cramped. Rats scamper through every corner. There's very little concern for cleanliness or disease. Bedding is shared amongst inmates, and it often goes unwashed for weeks, months, even a year. Worms wriggle through their meager, inedible food. At one point, the suffragists collect them all from their rancid bowls of soup and offer the worms to the warden on a single spoon. Enjoy! Alice Paul is serving six months in this nightmare, and she decides it's time to go on hunger strike. Some doctors come to examine her and try to change her mind. She won't, and so they begin to force-feed her. Every day, sometimes three times a day, they take her to the psych ward, strap her down to a chair, and force eggs and milk into her body. She will suffer from the aftermath for the rest of her life. And it's not just her. On November 14, 1917, some dozen women are arrested on what becomes known as the Night of Terror. They are taken to Occoquan, dragged down its halls, then bodily tossed into their cells. 55-year-old Dora Lewis hits her head against a wall and drops to the floor, unmoving. Another woman will have a heart attack and no doctor will be brought to attend her. Lucy Burns, whom the Washington Post said her guards call, Worth her weight in Wildcats, fought them all the way. When she calls the roll to make sure all the ladies are all right, the guards threaten to put them all into straitjackets. Burns keeps on talking, so they cuff her wrists, put her hands over her head, and say they're going to put a gag buckle in her mouth if she won't stop. One is even thrown in with a bunch of male prisoners and told they can do whatever they want with her. That night, they're brought no food, no water. There is no private place to change or to relieve themselves. The water closets were in full view of the corridor, where Superintendent Whittaker and the guards were moving about, writes Mrs. John Winters Brannan. The flushing of these closets could only be done from the corridor, and we were forced to ask the guards to do this for us, the men who had shortly before attacked us. Many of these women are socialites. These conditions and their treatment would be shocking, and for all the women, it's horrifying. 
Mrs. Virginia Buffy, a prison matron who is let go later because she shows kindness to the inmates, swears that Prisoners are punished by being put on bread or water or by being beaten. I know of one girl who has been kept 17 days on only water this month. The same was kept 19 days on water last year because she beat Superintendent Whitaker when he tried to beat her. She speaks of beatings, too, doled out by the superintendent and his son. I know of one girl beaten until the blood had to be scrubbed from her clothing. And for what? Public disturbance? Because they refuse to sit down and play the part they've been assigned? Sixteen of these women go on hunger strike after that, and, like Paul, many are force-fed. And, just as bad, they are isolated from each other, told that everyone else has already given in. Might as well do the work you've been assigned. Might as well eat your gruel. Imagine enduring such torture, because this is torture, and having to do it all alone. The press report the women are being treated just fine. Don't let them tell you we take this well, wrote Rose Winslow, who finds a way to smuggle her messages out. Miss Paul vomits much, and we think of the coming feeding all day. It is horrible. The public is outraged. Suffragists picket outside the White House, this time for their sister's freedom. Wilson is forced to change his stance. The women are let go, and their suffering, it turns out, helps to gallify the nation. In 1919, the Susan B. Anthony Amendment finally gets congressional approval, but it still has to be ratified by 36 states. In the summer of 1920, it's so close that suffragists can taste it. The drama comes to a head in Tennessee. The press call it the War of the Roses, as supporters of the amendment wear yellow roses in their lapels and opponents wear red. The flower count is so evenly split that everyone's holding their breath, waiting to see what will happen. The speaker, who's long been a suffrage supporter, suddenly does an about-face. Now what? But then, along comes Red Rose-wearing 24-year-old Harry Byrne. Everyone thinks he's going to go against suffrage, but what they don't know is that he's got a fresh letter from his mom tucked into his jacket. Hurrah and vote for suffrage, Feb Byrne writes her son. Don't forget to be a good boy. And he's a boy who listens to his mama. The 19th Amendment, which says that no citizen can be denied the right to vote based on sex, becomes law on August 26, 1920. In November of that year, Charlotte Woodward, who went to the Seneca Falls Convention as a young girl way back in the day, cast her ballot. She is the only woman of that era who gets to see this dream come true. Throughout the land, there is much celebration. And yet, in this, not every voice is heard, and it doesn't make everything right. The 19th Amendment only says what states can't do, deny someone a vote on the basis of sex. But they can impose poll taxes, literacy tests, and other forms of voter suppression on women of color to keep them from voting. Asian Americans aren't allowed because they still don't qualify as citizens. Native Americans won't be given the right to vote in some states for decades to come. To go to the polls, especially in the South, black women face serious violence, intimidation, and the prospect of losing their jobs. Some registrars refuse their paperwork, while others are handed a blank sheet of paper for a ballot. So many women continue to be gagged and silenced. And yet they keep fighting for their right to speak, to be safe, to be heard. They keep on fighting even now. The suffragists understood that representation matters. To vote is a right, but it's also a privilege. So go and vote, honoring all the women who raise their voices so that we can exercise our right to do the same. Let's learn from these haunting stories and always strive to do better. Go get em, tigeress. Until next time. Thanks for listening. If you like the show, tell a friend about it, leave a review, or become a patron, and you'll get lots of bonus Explorers for your money. Some of the music you just enjoyed comes courtesy of Kevin McLeod. You'll find links to his work in my show notes, as well as a transcript, an extensive list of suggested reading, movies, and podcasts on this topic, and a lot of images. 
just go to my website at theexplorespodcast.com. You'll find me on Instagram and Facebook at The Explores Podcast and Twitter at The Explores Pod. Much love to Mr. Explores for my theme song, show art, and his help producing this episode, and to the following voiceover legends for their vocal stylings. Anne Wand as Elizabeth Katie Stanton, Christina Capriola as Susan B. Anthony, Veronica C.R. Washington Ramos as Sojourner Truth, Angelica Catrix as Mrs. John Winters Brennan, Nancy Wasner as Clara Barton and Abigail Adams, Katie Conrad as Rose Winslow, Cecilia Cackley as Elizabeth Ware Packard, Sarah Stockwell as Lucretia Mott, Dee Robinson as Alice Paul, Sierra Markham as Carrie Chapman Catt, Tasha Schroeder as Ida Husted Harper, Katie from Queen's Podcast as Victoria Woodhull, Iris Strauss as Harriet Stanton Blatch, Brittany as Doris Stevens, Annie as Mrs. Virginia Bovey, Diana Larson as Inez Haynes Irwin, and Patricia Thacker, Julia Fuchs, Lauren Oakes, and Madeline. And also the wonderful Edie Chevalier playing Feb Byrne. Don't worry, Mom. Like Harry, I always listen to my mama. And as always, my brother John, as all our presidential idiots. 